As you're getting there, I'm actually going to invite you to stand with me. I want us to read together 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's a confession. It's an early church confession that uh, Paul records uh, to Timothy in the scripture. And I thought we would just uh, read this together as we get into God's word, all right? It says this. Would you say it with me? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Lord Jesus, this morning we just want to set our our hearts upon you, Lord, upon your kingdom. Again, we just thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, how you just bring us through day after day, year after year, Lord. And we thank you that as we uh, just stand on the edge of this new year, Lord, that we can make this confession together as a church. Lord, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, coming to the world to save us from our sins. Jesus, we confess you are Lord. And we set our hearts this morning upon your kingdom. We pray, God, that as we spend some time together in your word, that you would just speak to each and every one of us, Lord, that you'd strengthen, that you'd encourage, that you'd correct, Lord, that you'd bring rebuke if necessary. God, that your spirit would uh, speak to every one of our hearts and and lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, grab a seat. So Luke 22, here's the scene just to bring us back up to speed where we've been. Uh, It is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed. Jesus has already had the Passover uh, with his disciples. He's spoken very specifically and and pointed to to Peter, telling Peter some things that were going to go down with him personally. He had told the the disciples that things were going to change and that they were going to need to be ready for that. And then together with them, without Judas, just the 11, they left the upper room and they headed out of Jerusalem. They went down through the Kidron Valley. It's Passover, so they would have crossed that Kidron Creek there that would be flowing with the blood of the various lambs that had been sacrificed that Passover already as those celebrations had begun. And uh, they went up the hillside of the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane as it was, it was the custom of Jesus. That's what the scripture tells us. Every day during this week, this Passover week, he had been in the temple teaching and in the evenings he had been retiring to Bethany, and on the way to Bethany, there was the stop at the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was the place of prayer Jesus would go to, uh, or the place he would go to for times of prayer in Jerusalem. So let's check it out. Verse 39, it says this. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is a great insight just for us for about prayer because prayer, you know, lots of times we, we treat prayer as, we call it supplication. We go before God and we ask God to supply our needs. We ask God to bring provision for us. But what Jesus tells the 12 here is that prayer is, you know, I would say this, not just for provision, it's for our protection, That we get spiritual protection as we're spending time with the Lord in the place of prayer. We do this in prayer, absolutely. We ask God to supply. We ask God to meet our needs. But the flip side is this. We also say, Lord, would you protect me from the things I don't need? 
from the things I should not be participating in. And, and, and it makes me think this, you know, tonight we're going to gather for prayer. We're going to start our year out with a week of prayer uh, next Sunday. Um, you know, when we stop praying, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to temptation. And in times of temptation, prayer is the best action. One of the keys to protection from temptation is prayer. And the disciples, I mean, Jesus knows what, co- what is coming, but the disciples don't all know what is about to unfold. But Jesus knew. He knew the battle that was before them, and so he called them to join him in prayer. And verse 41 says, he withdrew from them about a, a distance of a stone's throw. I love that picture. It's like, how far can you throw a stone? You know, how many times have you been on the beach on the Sunshine Coast and whipped the stone out? into the ocean to see how far you could throw it. Well, Jesus withdrew from the 12, just a stone's throw. I think, well, maybe twice the length of this room. You got a good arm, maybe three times, maybe four times, whatever. But not too far between himself and the disciples. And so verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I love this. It's a garden. We know this, that when we turn to the book of Genesis and we open our Bible, when God made man as it's recorded there in the beginning, he placed Adam where? In a garden. In a garden is where the history of mankind began. It's also where Adam first sinned, right? Where he and Eve disobeyed the Lord. And so the Bible opens up Genesis with a man being placed in the garden. And amazingly, the scripture also closes that way. Revelation chapter 21 and 22, there's this garden scene of the new heavens and the new earth and trees that will provide life for the nations and a beautiful river. And there's this scene of the new heavens and the new earth where humanity will be with God and there will be no sin. So the scripture opens with Man in a garden closes with God and man together again in a garden. And here, where do we find Christ as he begins the work this day of redeeming mankind from sin? He's in the garden in prayer. And he prayed this, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup that Jesus was speaking about was the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath. I want to read to you this. This is so many, in so many places in Scripture, but here's one example from Psalm chapter 75, verse 8. It says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it on all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This was the cup that Jesus was speaking about, the cup of wrath, the cup of wrath that is poured out in judgment is going to be poured out upon the the Son of God. In the garden, Jesus submitted to receiving this cup from the Lord's hand. And it's amazing, you know, it's like Jesus knows what's about to go down. He knew that he would be raised from the dead. Jesus knew that he personally did not have a relationship or an personal experience with sin. He was sinless. He was not receiving the cup from the Lord's hand for his own sin, but for ours. 
He would be raised from the dead, but in the meantime, he was still going to face and have to suffer agony and pain for the sins of mankind, and he would be raised. And so he said, Father, you know, not my will, your will be done. And so it's appropriate that the Son of God celebrates the Passover with his disciples, then he withdraws to the garden to pray. You know, we often think about the wrath of God being laid upon Jesus when he's on the cross. But actually, it's in the garden that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father and he accepted the cup from the Father's hand. It's like the garden picture here is important because the first Adam rebelled against God in the garden. He brought sin and death into the world. The last Adam submitted to God in the garden. He said, not my will. Your will be done. And he brought life and salvation into the world. And verse 43 tells us something amazing. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. What a picture. Because the angels were there announcing his birth. They proclaimed to men the birth of the Savior. And they sang praises to God. When Jesus was in the, in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. The scripture tells us there that he was attended to and strengthened by angels. And an angel of God, of God was in the garden with him, strengthening him in the place of prayer and submission to the Father. It just makes me wonder how many times you and I have been ministered to by angels and we had no idea. Because the scripture tells us that they are ministering Spirit sent to serve the heirs of salvation. That's you and I. You know, I, I think about times where you go to the place of prayer and it's just like a battle to open your mouth. Just like to open your mouth. And, and then you open your mouth and you begin to pray and strength comes. Have you experienced that? And I don't know, but I wonder, wow, I wonder if angels are ministering to us at those sorts of times to strengthen us in the place of prayer. Now, in verse 44, it says this. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke's gospel is the only gospel account that records this detail, and it's interesting because of all the other gospel writers, Luke is what? A physician. He's a doctor. And he saw fit to record this detail. So I love that this comes from Luke. I was thinking about this. Have you ever, you know had the old blood vessel burst in your eyeball. You walk around for a few days and you got a half eye that's bloodshot or something like that. I've had that happen a couple times. Uh, it's a rare thing that can kind of happen in your body when you're under stress, but there is actually a physical condition that when human beings are under such duress, it's rare, it can happen where blood vessels will burst and mix with your sweat glands and it'll produce a mixture of blood and sweat. And this is what happened with Jesus. Luke says there was actually great drops of blood coming from him as he prayed. The, the wrath of God is coming upon him. He's under incredible duress. And again, there's a great connection here to the book of Genesis because when Adam was cursed by God in the garden, one of the things the Lord said to him is this. He said, the curse is this. By the sweat of your brow, you'll earn your living. It's like life is hard. It's part of the curse of sin. And maybe, I know Christmas season for lots of people in the new year, it can be a hard 
time of year, being around family and all the dynamics and things of life that goes on. Life is hard. That's a reality. But let me remind you, life is harder without Jesus. If you didn't have Jesus, you'd probably have a lot of the same problems in your life, maybe more. And worst of all, you wouldn't have access to the one who strengthens you and redeems you and all of your troubles. And so, yes, we, like Adam, the first Adam, might be familiar with the sweat of the brow, but Jesus sweat great drops of blood in the garden. He is the one who redeems us in our troubles and our toils and our labors. Verse 45, it says this, And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I, 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 we know this from the Gospels. This actually happened three times. Luke just tells us of once. And it's amazing. You know, here is Jesus, the, the one time that he could have used the disciples in terms of using them for their prayers and their support and their friendship and their companionship and what was going on. They're sleeping. It's a real human condition. When trouble comes, when sorrow comes, it's like we just want to sleep, not pray. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. Interesting, he's not called a, dis a disciple there, just a man, one of the 12. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Of course, in that culture, not uncommon to greet one another with a kiss. Not uncommon for a disciple to greet his rabbi with a kiss as a sign of submission, as a sign of affection and love. But the language implies that this was more than that. Judas was actually smothering Jesus with kisses. It's very odd. Just smothering him with kisses so as to make it very clear that Jesus was the one he was seeking to identify for the soldiers to arrest. Verse 49 says, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This was Peter. Luke doesn't tell us, but it was Peter. And I always love this. Uh, Peter, of course, is the one who, when Jesus had spoken to them earlier, earlier in the night, said, we have two swords, Jesus. And Jesus said, enough of that, Peter. And now Peter takes that sword and he uses it to slice off a man's ear. And I think it's because Peter had such bad aim. He only got the ear or because that man managed to duck just in time so that he didn't take off his head. But Peter just got the ear. And Jesus had told his disciples, you know, the time was coming to take up swords, but he was talking about the future when they would need protection, not for attacking people. And the man that Peter struck, church history tells us this, his name was Malchus. And Jesus heals him. And later on, Malchus becomes a part of the early church. And I just love this because Jesus is good at healing, you know, people's ears. You know, over the years, there's been a lot of overzealous 
disciples that have said things. Have you done that? Done things. Uh, to those who don't know Christ and you damage their ability to hear the simple message of Jesus and the gospel. And thankfully, I just think this, God is greater than our misplaced words. Yes, we should be very careful with our words, but thankfully God is greater than our misplaced words. His love is greater than our actions that are misguided in our zeal for the Lord. And it's interesting to think about this, that, that of all the miracles that Jesus did, the healings that he performed, this is the final healing of his earthly ministry. Healing someone hurt by an overzealous disciple. And after healing Malchus, Jesus turned and he rebuked the leaders for coming to arrest him in the cover of darkness. He pointed out to them, you know, I, I taught openly in your presence, in the temple, in full daylight. And you've come to arrest me. You could have arrested me anywhere, but you've come to arrest me under the cover of darkness. Let's read this, verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers to the temple, the officers of the temple and elders who'd come out against him. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You know, it's only when you want to hide your actions from others and you don't want to be seen that you choose darkness over daylight. They should not have been doing what they were doing. We know this, but this was the hour. Jesus called it the hour of the power of darkness. What a term. Verse 54 says, They seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And so that night, uh, Luke's not going to tell us all of the details, but when we take all of the Gospels and we begin to put it together, we know this, that Jesus was dragged all around the city of Jerusalem on that night. He went from the house of Annas to the house of, who was the former high priest, to the house of his son-in-law Caiaphas. He, he was taken to Pilate. He was sent to Herod. He was brought before the Sanhedrin. Now, Jesus was dragged back and forth all throughout the city of Jerusalem. One of the things that I love when we go to Jerusalem was such a, a light going on for me was we, we, we go and we uh, visit... Uh, a museum in Jerusalem, and there they have like, I think it's a one by 50 buildup of the ancient city. It's massive. It's the size of this entire room, a, 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 a scale build of the ancient city of Jerusalem. And you can stand all around it and you begin to recognize as you're there that Jesus was taken north, south, east, west. He essentially, on this night, the night that he was betrayed, was dragged to every corner of the city there was nobody who would not have known what was going on as he was dragged back and forth. The house of Herod, to Pilate, to Caiaphas, to Annas, to the Sanhedrin. Now under Roman occupation, the Jews did not have the right to administer uh, capital punishment. So they had to take Jesus to Roman authorities to have him crucified. But before he ever got to the Roman authorities, before he ever was taken to Pilate, he went to the house of Annas and Caiaphas. And then at daybreak, he was tried before the Sanhedrin, uh, which was the, uh, the religious leaders, their, their group. And Peter, we find out, was following at a distance. Besides John, all the others had fled. 
John had managed to work his way into the house where Jesus was because he had a personal connection. Uh, And so he was right in there where Jesus was being questioned, but Peter remained outside. And this is where Peter denied Jesus, this famous story. Jesus told him that it would happen, which tells us that Jesus has the foreknowledge of God. And there at the house of the high priest in the courtyard, because it was cold, a fire was kindled, and Peter, the scripture tells us elsewhere, warmed himself with those waiting outside. Look at verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looked closely at him. This man is also, this man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. <laughs> I think about this and and just Jesus leading the disciples just a short time before this, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he called them to pray, and Peter and the boys had gone to sleep. Jesus said, pray lest you fall into temptation. See, the difference between being hot or cold, asleep or awake for a believer is this, prayer. And to warm himself beside, uh, to warm himself, Peter sat down beside the enemy's fire. He was cold because he was prayerless. That's what I would say. And that will happen to you when you're cold because you're prayerless. You'll find this. You'll be sleeping when you should be praying and you'll find yourself warming yourself at the enemy's fire. And what happens is when you sit down at the enemy's fire, you don't get warmed. You get burned. And Peter was identified by a servant girl that he had been with Jesus. And he denied it said, I don't know him. Verse 58. And a little later, someone else said to him, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. So it's interesting. Peter's first recognized as being with Jesus. Next, he's recognized for being with the disciples. You're one of them. He was recognized as a disciple because he had been seen with other disciples. And and so I would say this, look at Peter's recognized for two good reasons here. Firstly, he's recognized as, as a disciple because he had been with Jesus. This happened to him another time too in the book of Acts. When, when people tried to shut Peter and John up, the leaders of the Jewish people recognized that Peter and John were unschooled men, but they had been with Jesus. Peter was recognized for having been with Jesus, but he was also recognized for having been with the other disciples. These are two marks of being a disciple of Christ. When you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be found in two places. You'll be found with Jesus, and you'll be found with other disciples. And it's not a healthy thing if you remove either one of those things. Like, think about it. You can spend a lot of time with Jesus and never gather with the church. Never gather with other believers. Not want to worship with other followers of Christ. And there's a problem with that kind of discipleship. It's not healthy. Or you could spend a lot of time with the church. You could gather with the disciples every time they are together. Every time the church has something on the calendar. But then not spend any personal time with Jesus in prayer or in the word getting to know Christ 
And I would say this, there's a problem with that kind of discipleship. It's not healthy. Peter, though he denied it, was recognized because he had been with Jesus and he had been with other disciples he had gathered with them. And even the enemies of Jesus could recognize his followers by these characteristics of discipleship. And so even so, the second time Peter's confronted, he denied his relationship with Jesus. There's something else that gives him away. And the next thing that gives him away, the third time he is called a follower of Christ, is his accent, his Galilean accent. It gave him away. And so too, disciples, those who follow Jesus, will be given away by their speech, by their accent, by the way that they talk. It's the accent of the kingdom. It's the language and the expressions of speech that we use, those who belong to Jesus. It's a tone and a language that's different from that of the kingdom of this world. Let's read this, verse 59. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I read that, I think, man, isn't this one of the most tragic accounts in the scripture? For a third time, Peter denied any relation to Jesus. Jesus had told him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said, no way, Lord. Even if all others should turn away from you, I never will. And yet that night around the fire, while the words were still in his mouth, the rooster crowed. And at the same moment, the Lord turned and looked at him. I, I, like, have you ever had those times in your life where everything just goes into slow motion? Like maybe a car accident. <laughs> You're like, whoa, everything. You know exactly what's about to happen. In my mind, it's like, that's Peter here. Everything goes into slow motion. The words were on his tongue when his ears heard the crow of the rooster. And at the same time, with his ears hearing the crow of the rooster and the the words on his lip, his eyes connected with the Lord. I'm so thankful, I was thinking about this, that the Lord knows that we're dust. That's what Psalm 103 says, that he knows our frame, that he remembers that we're dust. And that though we're dust, his love is as high as the heavens. That is his steadfast love to those who fear him. His word tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those that fear him. He knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. And when the eyes of Peter and Jesus locked, I really believe that the eyes of Jesus were full of compassion and it hit the heart of Peter. We read here that he went out and he wept bitterly. And, 
And you have to think that the only reason Peter denied Jesus was because of the fear of man. Like, what else would it have been? He warmed himself at the enemy's fire. It was, it was cowardice. He was so scared for his own skin that he was afraid to acknowledge Christ before men. And of course, it makes me think this, that Jesus said this, that if we'll acknowledge him before men, he'll acknowledge us before his Father in heaven. And the scripture tells us in the book of Revelation that cowards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to empower us to be bold in our profession of faith for Christ. Of course, John's gospel gives us the account of Jesus meeting up with Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus kindled a fire, not the enemy's fire. A fire, and Jesus said, Peter, come warm yourself here. And it was beautiful. Peter came, and there Jesus had prepared food for him. And, and as Jesus and Peter ate together, you, you know the story. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord. And Jesus commissioned him, then feed my sheep. And three times they had this exchange, one for each of the times that Peter had denied him. In church history tells us this, that whenever Peter would stand publicly to preach the name of Christ or to proclaim the gospel, mockers would gather. And you know what they would do? They would begin to crow like roosters, to mock him and to make fun of him and to put shame upon him and upon the gospel. But Peter never again shrunk back from preaching Christ. Over 63 now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. You know what's interesting is that at Passover, the Jews did not torture a lamb before it was sacrificed. So see, all this is extra. This is an addition. This is tacked on. I, I mean, the Lord God, God predicted that Jesus would die. The scripture foretold these things. His death was necessary to redeem us from sin, but God did not demand that the lamb be tortured beforehand. This was not the work of God. This was the work of men. That's what that tells me. This is a picture of, of the heart of sinful man against his creator. Not enough that the redeemer would die. They had to beat him, mock him, and blaspheme his name. Verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, before Jesus was sent to Pilate to be tried and they could get permission to 
crucify him. He was tried under Jewish law. And it's interesting here that three titles for Christ, for Jesus, come up in this discussion. The first one is Christ. They say this. They demanded, tell us if you are the Christ. Of course, the the name or the title Christ, it's not a name for Jesus. It's not a surname. It's a title. It means anointed one. We talked about this a little bit before Christmas. Or Messiah. It actually has the idea of your majesty attached to it. So the demand, the question was this. Are you the king who has come to deliver us from our enemies? The Jewish people, we know this, had waited for centuries for the coming of the Messiah. And just coming through Christmas season, we've known this as we've been celebrating the birth of Christ. We've talked about this a number of times this Christmas season. But at his birth, God clearly identified that Jesus was the Christ. The actions of Jesus during his life in ministry clearly identified him as the Christ, the Messiah. There should have been no question as to his identity. And Jesus says to their demand, he answers them this way. If I answer you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Then the second title for Jesus came into the conversation by his own initiative. That's the title, Son of Man. He said this. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now that title, the Son of Man, is very, uh, it's in the book of Ezekiel a lot. A lot, but specifically that title speaks of the Messiah. It's connected to the Messiah and there is one prophecy in particular that they would have known very, very well. It's from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 that says there is a son of man who is going to come on the clouds of heaven and he will return to heaven after he's been here and he will present himself before the ancient of days. And Jesus picked up that title and he applied it to himself. He said, from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And when they heard this, they brought up another title. They asked him, Then are you the Son of God? And Jesus said to them, You are right in saying that I am. We know this, I am is the divine name. Jesus said, You're right in saying that I am. So at last, they said this, We have evidence from his own lips, the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. You know, when we talk about Jesus as God, There are lots of people who love to say this. Jesus never claimed to be God. Which demonstrates they don't know the word of God, church. They don't know it. Other religions might honor Jesus, but they don't acknowledge him as God. Cults diminish his deity, saying he is God, but they lower Jesus in their doctrine. They make him some lesser God in some sort of sense. But the scribes, the priests, The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees were not so foolish as to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. In fact, uh, that claim was the very thing that sealed the deal for them to take action and to see that he was crucified. When they asked, are you the son of God? And he said to them, you are right in saying that I am. They said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. They knew Jesus was claiming 
to be God. And it would have been blasphemy if it were not true. It would have been blasphemy if it were not true. Had he not given all the evidence needed, it would have been true that it was blasphemy, but instead it was true. And it would seal the reality that they were going to see that he was crucified. And, and the greatest evidence would come forward ever that he really was who he claimed to be. His death and his resurrection. If there wasn't enough evidence already, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is indisputable evidence to his claims that he is God. I would say this, the deity, this is important because the deity of Jesus is so foundational and it's so essential to our faith that if you take it away, church, we have no salvation. If Christ is not God, then the work of the cross and the reality of the resurrection is meaningless. But Christ Jesus is God. And this is the gospel. God did not send some sacrificial son to take care of the sin of man. No, God came himself. God himself came and died for you. God came. This is the Christmas message. In all humility and gentleness. And he clothed himself in human flesh. The spirit of God hovered over the womb of a virgin and that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. And he was given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he was declared by God and by the angels and by the word of God and by his actions that he was the Lord's Christ. He is Christ the Lord, son of man, son of God, come to save his people from their sins. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? And again, today, I want us to close. We're going to have communion in a moment. But I want us to read this passage that Paul wrote from Tim, to Timothy from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It'll be on the screen there. It's a confession of faith about the mystery of godliness. And it says this, He was manifested in the flesh. Who? Jesus. Yeah, God. God himself manifested in the flesh to free us from our sins and to give us eternal life. And so we confess this. It's a great mystery. I don't understand it. We'll never understand it. But this is what God has come and done for us that we might have salvation. Let's read it together. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And as they come, I want to leave you just with two exhortations. The first is this, church, don't neglect the place of prayer. We're going to gather tonight. We're going to enter into a week of prayer next Sunday. And Jesus had to wake those disciples from sleep. It's not a good thing for disciples to be sleeping. And you and I, we're, we're longing to be disciples of Christ. And so the place of prayer is important. Not just for supply, but for protection. That God would protect us. And so I want to encourage you, don't, 
Ignore, don't sleep in the place of prayer. You know, Christmas time, it's like we've stayed up too late, too many nights, watching too many movies and eating too much food like a glutton. And I just want to encourage you, come to the place of prayer as we gather. And then the second thing is this. Don't linger at the enemy's fire. You know, again, Christmas time and holiday time and downtime, it's a time where there is a tendency to sit down by the enemy's fire. Maybe you've been there. Don't linger at the enemy's fire. The compassion of Jesus invites you back to himself. Return to him.